Okay, let's read Luke 9, chapter, chapter 9, 28 to 36. Some eight days after these sayings, he, meaning Jesus, took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we come before you now, and we ask that you would move by the power of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. We pray that everything that uh, is said, thought, and done in this time would be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So imagine that you suddenly find yourself in the year 500 in what is now England, and you're trying to explain to someone there with you that the earth is not actually flat. You don't have anything with you from the future, like a globe or pictures of Earth from space. So, you know, they'd look at the flat horizon and they would say, what are you talking about? You know, what, what you're saying to them would seem like nonsense. And they wouldn't really listen to you, to what you're saying. Or if you try to explain to them that the piece of wood that they had in their hand, like the wood of this podium, if, if you cut it smaller, yeah, you can get smaller pieces of wood. But if you keep going down small enough, actually, this wood is not made up of more wood. It's made up of something called an atom that is actually made up of a lot of space. They would... <laughs> it would be nonsense to them. They, they would not really listen to you. But, you know, even for us, we don't really understand how much space is in an atom. Because when we see drawings of atoms like this, they, they actually aren't drawn to scale. So, you know, they're... Okay, we're, we're not going to have a science lesson today. There's not going to be a quiz or anything. Don't worry if you're having flashbacks to high school or anything. So, um, the, you know, the electrons are going around the, the center, and the center is where really all the mass is. That's... that's kind of the stuff, right? Um, but that's, it's not drawn to scale. Now, you know, tiny atoms make up things that are very large, like the Empire State Building. So, I'm sure most of you know the Empire State Building in New York City. So, 
It's 102 floors high. It weighs 365,000 tons. So it, you can't actually do this, but if you took all the space in the atoms and removed it, it would obviously be smaller, right? What's left over would, would be a lot smaller. So how much smaller do you think it would be? Do you think it would be maybe 20 floors high or 10 floors high with all that space or, or maybe even one floor high? Well, even Brian, the engineer, is shaking his head. He's, he's not sure. Well, actually, it would be the size of a grain of rice. I don't know about you, but personally, I find it incomprehensible how that is possible. How can this podium and, and this floor and this building be made up of things that are almost entirely empty? You know, as bizarre as it is to us that God has constructed our world this way, you know, for, this, for the disciples, it was just as bizarre what Jesus said he was going to do. What Jesus said he was going to do is the first of actually two main things that we have to know to understand what was going on in the transfiguration and why it happened. You can turn the slide off. Thanks. That's great. So we know that what Jesus said is important and necessary for us to understand what's going on because our first verse, verse 28 says, in the NIV it said, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him. So Luke is making it very clear that everything that follows, this next section, is directly related to what Jesus said above. And the most important thing that Jesus said above, he said a few things, but the one most important thing that he said is in verse 22. He said, the Son of Man, meaning himself, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. For many of us, this is a concept we're, we're used to. For, for many of us, we have known for a while that Jesus rose, died and rose. But just like a person in England in the year 500 who wouldn't really listen to you talking about atoms and about the earth being round, the disciples weren't really listening to Jesus. This didn't make sense to them. Because just before Jesus talked about dying, Peter had said, he, he had acknowledged, he said, Jesus, you are the Messiah. But for Peter and for all Jewish people, the Messiah doesn't die. He's victorious. He restores Israel. He's going to throw off the Romans, all the, the oppressive Romans, and throw them out of Israel. Every Jewish person knew this about the Messiah, just like they knew the earth was flat. So if, in fact, Jesus was going to be killed, especially in a way that only criminals died on the cross, it can only mean that he's not the Messiah. This is how the disciples were thinking. So, for their sake, God validated Jesus by glorifying him in front of them. But he didn't just validate who Jesus was, 
that he was God's son and the chosen one, he validated what Jesus said he would do, his mission on earth, the fact that he would die. That's what Moses and Elijah were talking about when they were talking with Jesus. That's what the word departure meant. It was a euphemism for someone's death. They were talking about Jesus dying in Jerusalem. And God wanted to make it clear to the, to the disciples that when Jesus dies in Jerusalem, it's not a mistake. It's not an accident. This has been God's plan all along. You know, it's interesting that the Greek word that is translated as departure here, the Greek word is exodus. Now, that probably will remind you of the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt. In fact, this whole transfiguration scene with Moses and Elijah representing both the law and the prophets, this whole scene points back to the Old Testament. And that's the second thing that we really need to be aware of to understand what's going on here. The Exodus and the giving of the law were perhaps the most, most formative experiences in the history of Israel. The Israelites defined themselves. They, this is how they saw themselves, as the people whom the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob miraculously delivered out of Egypt. And then God made them his people who were to follow the commands that he then gave them. And these commands were a direct revelation from God. Moses didn't make them up. In Exodus 19, God says to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that people will hear me speaking with you and always put their trust in you so that they will know this, all of this is from me. And in Exodus 24, when God gave Moses the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them, it was Moses on a mountain in a cloud, just like in our passage. Except in this case, we also have Elijah as well, who represented all the prophets. And the prophets were the ones who spoke what God revealed to them. In a way, they, they almost, this almost encapsulates all of God's revelation. And God is making it very clear to, to the disciples that right there, at that very moment, this was God's direct revelation, His direct stamp of approval on Jesus and what Jesus was doing. But before the cloud formed, so they're on the mountain, and Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus, before the cloud formed, the disciples, they were, they were kind of groggy and, the, and they were... were sleeping a bit, and they wake up, and they see Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus in glory. And you know, at this point, they aren't thinking at all about what Jesus said eight days before about being rejected and dying. This is the last thing on their mind. You know, they probably remembered that Jesus said He's the, the Messiah. They probably remember that. And so here's the Messiah, and he's in glory. And they're so focused on the glory that when Moses and Elijah start to leave, Peter wants to keep them there. He wants, let's keep this thing going. I mean, this is amazing, right? And so he says, hey, let, uh, let me build some tents for you guys. You know, maybe, maybe that'll keep them there. 
And Luke says, you know, Peter didn't, didn't even know what he was saying. I mean, people from heaven who are now appearing on earth in glory probably don't need tents or tabernacles or shelters. You know, but Peter is not just overcome by the moment and being silly. He doesn't really get what's going on. He doesn't truly understand who Jesus is, that the Messiah would actually be God himself. You know, some commentators say that when, when Peter suggested making three tents, three equal dwellings for each of them, that he was actually putting Moses and Elijah on the same level as Jesus, who is God, which, which is obviously not appropriate. And so while Peter is saying this, He's coming up with this ridiculous notion. Right as he's saying this, God makes his presence known. The cloud forms, and it says, I don't know about your translation, but it says, overshadows them. And that's actually the same Greek word that's used in the Greek Old Testament when Mount, the Mount Sinai passage describes the cloud overshadowing Moses and the mountain. And then they hear God's voice. We now have all the elements of the law being given on Mount Sinai. They're on a mountain with Moses, with God's presence in a cloud, and Elijah to boot, and God's voice. It's a moment of a revelation as great or even greater than when the law was given. And what's interesting is that the voice speaks directly to Peter, James, and John. Now, some, for some of you, these words that Jesus, or sorry, that God spoke might ring a bell. They might sound familiar because they're very similar to what was said to Jesus at his baptism. But at that, in that moment, at the baptism, God was speaking, the Father was speaking to Jesus. In this moment, he's speaking directly to the disciples. And what's the message that he gives them? He says, listen to my son. Listen to him. Because they hadn't been listening. They couldn't wrap their heads around what Jesus was saying. Someone being killed means they are not the Messiah. This podium being solid means it's not made up of mostly empty space, right? But God's plan was beyond what they could even imagine. You know, this, this scene, it points back to the Old Testament, and it also points to previous revelation, the Law and the Prophets. But in this, in this sense, God is saying that, you know what, my ultimate revelation now is Jesus Christ. I gave you the law before. This is now my son. I'm not just giving you words. I'm giving you me. I'm giving you a person. I have revealed myself in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is going to fulfill the law completely. And all the promises in the prophets in the Old Testament, he's going to fulfill those promises that I made. He is sinless and righteous, and he will be, God is saying, I will be your righteousness. And you know, God's plan also included the exodus redoing the exodus. Because with the first exodus, so Israel was in slavery, 
in bondage in Egypt, and that's a picture of us being in slavery to sin. Israel had no power to free themselves from Egypt, and we have no power to free ourselves from sin. It took the power of God to free them. And God did it by having his judgment fall on everyone in the land of Egypt, including Israel, when God killed the firstborn of all people and even all the cattle, except for people who stayed in their houses with blood spread on the doorposts, blood from a perfect spotless lamb that was sacrificed on their behalf. The blood of the lamb is what saved them. And God delivered them and brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land of Israel. But the exodus that Moses led was not permanent. Because of Israel's disobedience, they were eventually exiled. Even though some people returned, and at the time of Jesus, there were many Jewish people in Israel, they were once again enslaved, basically. They were under the rule of a people who did not follow God. The exodus out of Egypt was not permanent. Joel B. Green says that Luke is portraying the mission of Jesus as a divinely ordered reenactment of the exodus from bondage. So Jesus is reenacting the exodus, which was freedom from captivity. That's, that's what Jesus said way back in Luke, if, if you've been here with us in the sermon towards the beginning in Luke chapter 4. You'll remember what he said in the synagogue when he stood up and he, and he read from Isaiah and he said, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. God is, is basically, he's, he's redoing the exodus, but this time it's different. There are three very important things that are different about this exodus. First, it's not just for Israel, it's for all nations. God is fulfilling His promise that He made to Abraham that Abraham would be a blessing to all nations. Second, this exodus is permanent. The first exodus only pointed to the real permanent one that Jesus would accomplish, which would forever break the power of sin and death. And the third way that it's different is the one that the Jewish people could not understand. Because this time, God Himself is the Lamb. He sets us free, not through a display of power, through plagues. He sets us free through suffering and dying and taking on our sin. You know, for the disciples, for all Jewish people, this seemed like nonsense. How can God come anywhere close to sin? Over and over in the Old Testament, it says repeatedly, God is holy. God is holy. In fact, right after the Exodus, so the Israelites have been freed, and now they're in the wilderness, and God is leading them, and His presence is there in, in the cloud. They need the book of Leviticus, which is just a whole long list of rules and sacrifices and everything that they have to do so that these sinful Israelites could just be anywhere close to God without being destroyed by Him because He is so holy. 
So how can God take on our sin and suffer? It makes as much sense as this podium being, being empty space. But this was God's revelation to us, that he takes on our sin and suffers for us, that his love for us is beyond what we can understand or imagine. This revelation is for each one of us. He's saying, listen. Listen to my son. He's telling you about the way to life. In fact, he is the way, and he is the life. You know, God's revelation in Jesus is about who God is, that God is three persons in one being, that he lives in love, he is love within himself, and that he loves us, and he's redeemed us. But his revelation is also about the nature of suffering and glory. You know, Peter and the Jewish people, they wanted the glory. They didn't want the suffering. We don't want the suffering. Nobody does. But in this event, in the transfiguration, where the glory of Jesus is seen by the disciples, and this glory, this event, foreshadows the glory of Jesus in the future, in heaven. What's the topic of conversation? It's about Jesus' death. In the midst of this glory, the topic is about his departure, his suffering, what he would accomplish. God was saying that the suffering of Jesus is not just some detour. It's not something that takes Jesus off course for a little bit, and then he gets back on. You know, like, like Satan did something and God kind of fixed it and now things are right. No. The path to glory goes through suffering, which is why Jesus said just before the transfiguration that he's going to die. And this has implications for what it means to follow him because he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to lose his life, sorry, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. When Jesus says this, are we listening? What he says doesn't seem to make sense to us. How could losing our life lead to life? But then, Apart from God's revelation, we can only go with what we see. And from our human perspective, what we see is a flat horizon. We see the pain and the suffering. But God is saying we can't see all of reality. There's something beyond the horizon. What we see is not all there is. To the disciples, he said, when you see Jesus dying, that's not all there is. It looks like defeat, but it's a victory. It is through suffering that I am setting you free. And God proved it by raising Jesus from the dead and Jesus ascending in power to the right hand of God the Father. And because of what he did, we can trust Jesus when he says that it's worth it to take up our cross and follow him, that to save our lives we must give them up for his sake. 
You know, the disciples were really slow learners. You know, by the way, and, and a lot of times, if you've read the New Testament, you know, a lot of times they actually end up looking pretty foolish, right? I mean, this is, this is one of those cases. And, you know, just as an aside, this is one of those things that just shows you the New Testament is true. Because, no, it's not stories that are made up afterwards. The leaders of a movement are never going to create a document where they themselves look silly and foolish. It's just one of the many, many things that support the truth of the New Testament. And so, you know, they were, they were slow learners. They, they, they didn't get it. Even, even though God revealed who Jesus was in the Transfiguration, it was only when they actually saw Jesus die and then rise that by the power of the Holy Spirit, they got it, and they start listening, and they followed because they saw His glory, and they understood that it came through suffering. How they saw suffering and the world and themselves, everything changed because of God's revelation that opened their eyes to see reality as it really was. It was now obvious to them that losing their lives for Jesus made sense. All of them suffered. All of the disciples suffered, and, and many of them died. And they gained their lives. The Apostle Paul, when he was called Saul, he had a good life with respect and honor. He was a highly educated man and a defender of Judaism, he thought, because he was persecuting Christians. But then, on the road to Damascus, he saw the glory of Jesus, and everything changed. Now, nothing else mattered but being with Jesus. In fact, he said in Philippians, everything that he had, the prestige, the, the respect, everything, it's just rubbish compared with having Jesus Christ. And he went so far as to say that I want to know the sufferings of Christ. So I can also know the power of His resurrection. He was captivated by the glory of Jesus, by the love of Jesus. God had opened His eyes to the truth so He could see beyond the horizon, beyond what He could only see with human eyes. He saw beyond the suffering to the glory that God has had for Him and has for us who are in Christ. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul said that all the sufferings of this world, all of it, are not even worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Has God revealed to you the glory of Jesus Christ? Has God revealed to you who Jesus Christ is? If not, if, if you really want to know Jesus, ask God to reveal Him to you and He will. But then when He speaks, will you truly listen? And if you know Jesus, if God's already revealed Himself to you, are you listening? Are you willing to follow Him even if it means having to suffer? May we believe in God when He says, this is my Son, my chosen one, and may we listen to Jesus when he says, I suffered and died for you.
to set you free. And any suffering that you go through is nothing compared with the glorious life that I have for you. Will you trust me? Will you listen? Amen.